Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. There was once a frontier Baptist minister named William Miller, very happy-looking guy. He was a preacher of great revivalistic skill, a product of the second great awakening that swept much of the border country of the United States in the mid-1800s. Miller became fixated on the second coming of Jesus Christ, and he began studying the prophetic books of the Bible, particularly the books of Daniel, in Revelation, and through a very complex set of calculations, Miller concluded that the second coming of Jesus, quote, is near and even at the door on or before 1844. A few of Miller's associates were bold enough to stamp the world with a very precise expiration date, October 22nd, 1844. Magazines were printed. Camp meetings were held, and 1,500 Millerite evangelists scoured the countryside with the word that the end was near. Miller's ideas gained incredible traction. A million people, an extraordinary number of people in the 1840s when the only thing viral was disease, attended his meetings, and thousands were converted to his ideas. So, on the evening of October 21st, 1844, as many as 10,000 of William Miller's followers gathered on hillsides all over the country to mark the big event they called the Midnight Cry, the Rapture, the coming of Jesus for His church, for the true believers who had readied themselves. They had quit their jobs, they had given away all their possessions, they had made peace with their God and with their neighbors the best they could, and many were wearing white ascension robes, dressed for their transition from earth to heaven. Nothing happened, of course. And in an understatement of all understatements, in Millerite history, October 22nd, 1844 became known as the Great Disappointment. <laughs> no kidding. The Millerites had become, in the words of the cliché, so heavenly-minded they were of no earthly good. I wish I could say that Miller was an isolated case, but we know differently. And it's not just a few flaky groups on the periphery or things that have happened in the past. Men like the late Harold Camping, Pat Robertson, or more recently C.J. Lovick, Lovick and his adherents are all just awash right now in apocalyptic expectation these days, as he predicted five or so years ago that 2023 would be the return of Christ and the end of the world. We're down to seven weeks. 
It's also more normal people who look around at this crazy world and who can blame them. And they say, please stop, let me off. I don't want to take this ride any longer. And with recent events, the apocalyptic fever is spreading. It spreads by social contact. A small group gets together, they talk about the war in the Middle East. They begin to cite prophetic passages from the book of Revelation, Ezekiel, Daniel. They are consumed with watching the signs of the time. And surely they say, this is the end of the world. It spreads by mass gatherings. Someone in my position, my vocation, stands up to speak to an audience like you. And using those same scripture passages, they begin to talk about the apocalypse and offer a compelling case that Jesus will return at any moment now. The Antichrist will arrive probably in the Caucasus. China will march an army west. Israel will begin to work on a third temple. The ashes of the last red sacrificial heifer will be discovered. And then it's all wormwood and gnashing of teeth by the time that the altar call is given. If you Google Israel apocalypse or something like that, in about a half a second, you'll have 20 million pages to peruse, ranging from the academic and thoughtful to the violent and the frantic. Memes on Facebook, full-length dispensational lectures on YouTube, blogs, sermons, rants, threads, dots connecting Hamas with Antiochus Epiphanes from the 2nd century B.C. I don't have to view all of these things to know what they are saying. This was the air that I breathed growing up in my own sectarian tradition. And I have shared and cataloged for years the abuses of my hard-shell Baptist raising and know it wasn't all bad. I wouldn't be, I couldn't be, who I am today, for good or for bad, without that upbringing. And I have so many good and healthy memories and experiences. I love the Bible and I love Jesus because of those people. But there was a lot of trauma associated with that. As well, and some of you can say, Amen, I know what you mean. My church seemed to be obsessed with three things, as I now recall. Number one, dress codes. Women couldn't wear pants, no one could wear shorts. The sight of skin apparently induced too many thoughts of fornication. A short haircut on a woman or a long haircut on a man, instant perdition. And I think there's a part of me still, past 50, rebelling through my youngest son's hairstyle right now. Look how long his hair is. I won't make him cut it. Because I was taken to the barber shop every week whether I needed it or not. Second, hell. It was a constant theme. And most people who ever drew breath for all of human history were likely going there. That place prepared for the devil and his angels, where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not, and the smoke of that place rises up forever and ever. I heard that a few times. So all of you long-haired hippies and rock and rollers and beer drinkers and fornicators and cross-dressers, you can't burn quick enough. <laughs> and three, the apocalypse. We were well steeped like, like boiling tea leaves in a system of biblical interpretation known as dispensationalism. And I'll not get into the mechanics or the details of it because the last time I did, my friend Kirk said to me, 
I was with you all the way until you said, let's get started. <laughs> it's complicated. And it would probably take a couple of college semesters to draw all the threads together. But I can summarize it for you. The Middle East, particularly Israel, is the key to everything. And events there will bring on the end of days. The great tribulation will come. The Antichrist will rise. The new world order will prevail. Jesus will return, however, at any second, rescue true believers while others are all left behind to endure the judgment of God. And then it will be the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the seven trumpets of judgment, seven seals, famine, death, war, oblivion, Armageddon. And this futuristic doomsday approach really took root in the post-World War I generation. The West had never seen so much bloodshed and violence. And since then, this has been the default interpretive position of fundamentalists and evangelicals in North America. In fact, it is almost exclusively now an American phenomenon. No other place in the world interprets the Bible this way. And many that you see supporting Israel right now, it's not out of love for the Jewish people. It's the belief that events in Israel will bring the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. And that sounds cool until you start pressing those who hold those opinions for answers. And the answer is this, in this way of viewing things. The entire nation of Israel outside of 144,000 chosen must all perish and go to hell in order for the sequence of events to follow in the correct order. So what they're saying is, these are God's chosen people until they're all dead. And then we become God's chosen people. And it really is a bit of theological nihilism. And fatalism. Well, I'm going to tell a different story today. I'm going to take a different interpretation because inciting fear and cultivating suspicion and invoking fatalism in people whose faith should be producing peace, joy, love, and hope is not helpful in the 21st century. And I'm going to tell this different story using a parable that my childhood pastors used to prove that it was the end of the world. I'm going to use it and suggest that maybe the opposite is true. Maybe we aren't at the end at all. Maybe we're at some kind of beginning. Maybe the posture of being ready to check out should be replaced with digging in. Maybe instead of running a sprint into the arms of any minute now Jesus, we should see our race as a multi-generational ultra-marathon giving ourselves to perseverance rather than than to escapism. Matthew 25, 1-13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. 
All the bridesmaids got up, prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. And then that punchline, so you too must keep watch for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. Now this parable is traditionally known as the parable of the ten virgins, though these young ladies' chastity is hardly an issue in the story as far as I can read. The New Living Translation is more accurate. These young ladies are bridesmaids, and they are waiting for a wedding to begin. And the theological doomsayers have everything they need in this story. Surprise, some welcomed, some left out. Night, darkness, the command to keep watch, you don't know when I'm coming back. This story is an apocalyptic centerpiece, but as is my way, let's look at it a bit differently and begin with the context. When a couple got married in ancient Israel, there were three stages of marriage. Engagement. This could begin as early as childhood because most marriages were arranged by your parents. Just let that wash over you for a moment. Then there was the betrothal period. A period lasting about a year. All the wedding details and all the planning were done. And finally, the third step, the actual ceremony. But you didn't get an invitation to the wedding in your mailbox on a crisp white postcard with silver embossed writing. As the wedding day drew near, an announcement would be made to the entire village the groom is on his way. And then this would put all the gears into motion. The cooking, the cleaning, the reserving the banquet hall, donning the wedding garments, putting everyone on alert, including the bride and her bridesmaids, as in this story. But the announcement that the groom was on his way was very general. He might be a mile away. He might be days away. He might be finishing sowing his wild oats at some bachelor party, for all we know. But most likely what was happening in ancient Judaism, he was in the last protracted negotiation with the bride's father about the dowry. And I know that sounds like a business decision. But when parents arranged weddings, they usually did so in ancient times, not out of love, but out of the best financial outcome possible. Negotiations took time. All this is playing in the background of the story. And so we join the bridesmaids waiting on the groom to arrive. And these ladies would accompany the bride to her wedding ceremony. And sometimes, as in Jesus' story, the groom arrived in the bride's village at the most inconvenient hour, even in the middle of the night. And if that was the case, then the bridesmaids would light their lamps and they would join the wedding party to the wedding feast. Now, what is this story about? Well, it's not that Jesus will come and rescue some while others are left behind. It's not that some were awake and others were asleep. Did you notice that they were all 
Let's leap. The point of this story is about the delay. The extremely long time that it took for the grooms to finally arrive. The only difference between those who got to the wedding on time and those who missed the wedding were that some of those anticipated a long delay on the part of the groom. And they had extra oil in their lamps. And the others who were foolish, they had a little oil, but they didn't have enough. They quite literally ran out of gas. And this parable only makes sense like this, especially with thousands of years of Christian history behind us. If we understand that this isn't a story about the imminent return of Christ, it is a story about the delayed return of Christ. Jesus seems to be saying here the opposite of what so many apocalyptic preachers are saying. The world may not wrap up as quickly or as neatly as you think. The wait may be exceptionally long. You may not be standing at the end of human history at all. You might only be in the first few chapters or at some halfway mark. Be prepared for the long haul. You can't burn up all your fuel thinking that you're just steps away from the finish line. The wisdom of these five young ladies with the extra fuel becomes clear as they were not unprepared for the lengthy wait. They were ready. And when the time came to do their job, which was to light the darkness, they had enough resources within them to do so. Now, some of the preachers of my childhood were good-hearted, and they were very well-intentioned. But I think they were escapist in practice and in theology because they could not face the world as it had become and as it was. I had friends in college who became so convinced that Jesus was going to return at any moment, they dropped out their sophomore year to prepare. And that was 35 years ago. I had a man in the very first church that I pastored. I was, I was the youth pastor. And his kids were middle schoolers in my youth group. And he said to me one night, I'm not saving for their college because I know that Jesus will return before they graduate high school. Those kids are almost 40 years of age and their father has been on Medicare for a decade. It's tough out there. But if our view of the future is only one that is dark and sinister and hopeless, and that the timeline we attach to the world grows shorter and shorter, if we are absolutely convinced that we are living in the last sentence of the last paragraph on the last page of human history, we might as well go ahead, robe up, and sit down on a hilltop somewhere because we have given up on life and on the world. And it is not the role of the people of God who follow Christ to give up on the world. It is our calling to throw ourselves into the world and to give as much light as possible. So rather than asking the evangelist question, you do know the question, what if Jesus came back today? Were you asked that in church ever? 
If Jesus came back today, would you be ready? And everybody leaves terrified for a few minutes. They get to eat lunch. Their blood sugar rises. Everybody calms down. <laughs> I want to ask a different question. What if Jesus doesn't come back today? What if Jesus doesn't come back tomorrow or next year or next decade or next century? What kind of world do we want our descendants to be living in? What kind of world will we have left them? Do we really, do we really want to be like most politicians today who just kick the can of our worst problems down the street for the next generation to solve long after they have left office? Is that how we want to live our lives spiritually? Do we really want to spend our days and our energy as doomsday preppers? Are we really that employee who uses most of his time just watching the clock so he can punch out instead of doing what he has been employed to do? So I'll finish with a different clock being built by a not-for-profit organization called the Long Now Foundation. This organization has been around since 1996. It hopes to be around much longer. I'll quote what their goal is. They say, Our accelerating technology, the short-horizon perspective of market-driven economics, the next election perspective of democracies, and the distractions of personal multitasking have given us a pathologically short attention span. So Long Now is building a massive clock that will tick for the next 10,000 years. The clock is currently under construction and when completed, it will rest inside Mount Washington in the Great Basin National Park of Nevada. It will be more than 300 feet tall, an elaborate 21st century version of Stonehenge. And chimes are already being programmed. That it will play a different tune at noon every day for the next three million days. The church is allegedly the most hopeful community in the world. Allegedly. And we could use some of that kind of thinking. Some of that kind of hope. And many of us who have been swamped with apocalyptic terror might learn to unlearn some of what we have been taught. Because the truth is that Jesus will probably not return today. Now if He does, I will apologize to every one of you in front of the entire universe. And it's not likely that He'll return in my lifetime. So we have to be more than prepared. We have to be prepared to persevere. No, God is not slow about keeping His promises. But do not miss what I believe to be Jesus' point with this story. No matter how long the darkness lasts, and no matter how long the wait, the task of the follower of Christ remains the same. We persist in lighting the darkness knowing that the wait and the work has already taken much longer than many sincere people ever thought or could have imagined, and the wait and the work will likely outlast us all. And it is our calling to be at the task for as long as we have days.
This is a prayer adapted from the words of Father Pierre Tejard de Chardin. And I just love this, and this will be for all of us. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient for everything to reach its end without delay. And yet, we must pass through instability. Instability that may require perseverance for a very long time. So, let God's kingdom mature. Let it grow. Do not force today what can only happen tomorrow. Give Christ the benefit of believing that His hand is leading us. And accept the anxiety of feeling suspense and incomplete for the slow work of God goes on.